Well, hey, everyone. This is the New Denver Church Message Podcast, and we are in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. So we're walking through the book of Leviticus, and in the last message, part seven, we looked at Leviticus chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement or the Day of Cleansing. So this is part 7b, which means today we're going to go a little bit deeper into chapter 16, and uh, we're also going to jump into the book of Hebrews in the New Testament for a little bit. So my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver Church, and uh, just thanks here at the beginning of this podcast for uh, joining me on this journey. If you've been listening to all of them so far, you've invested a lot of time, and that's awesome um, because I think uh, you've been investing time into this ancient book of Leviticus, which for a lot of people seems like it's not worth the time, but I hope you've discovered what I've discovered, that it has so much more to say to us and about us, and about our lives, and about our world than we often think it does. So let's jump in. Uh, For today, a very quick recap first. Um, The Day of Cleansing, or Yom Kippur, uh, happened once a year, right? And uh, in this ritual, the high priest, um, who initially was Aaron, uh, goes into the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, by himself, Before he goes in, he has to take a bath. He has to put on these special clothes. They're described as very simple clothes uh, that represent probably humility and just represent him being like, uh, representing the whole community. Um, He goes in, he offers a number of sacrifices. Uh, One of the sacrifices is a bull, and it is to purify him of his sin. Another sacrifice is a goat. It's offered on behalf of the people. And it is to purify the actual physical space, this tent of meeting. And uh, in both of these sacrifices, Aaron is told to go into the most holy place. And we talked about that. This most holy place or the Holy of Holies was the inner room, the inner sanctum where God's presence dwelt. Um, And so this was a significant moment in this ritual. Going into this room meant to go into God's immediate presence, right? And so the purpose for this whole day is to go into God's presence and to ask forgiveness on behalf of the whole nation, to have one day a year where all the sins and all the failures of everyone in the nation is is, all cleansed and it's all forgiven. Now, the other really significant moment in this ceremony is when Aaron takes the second goat, And he places his hands on this goat and he confesses over this goat all of the sins of the people. And it says all of their guilt, all of their rebellion or waywardness and all of their sins. And then the goat is released into the wilderness. And the image is that this goat carries their sins away for good. They don't have to carry the burden of these failures, of this guilt or this shame anymore. It's been carried away. And I love, there's a psalm. The psalm was certainly written much later, uh, Psalm 103. It talks about this idea. I love this. Listen to what it says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve 
or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that amazing, right? Doesn't that capture this idea well? As this goat is being led out into the wilderness, the people of Israel can know for certain that God is compassionate, that he's gracious. If they had any doubts, they can know he loves us because he has taken all of our sins and he's carried them away. He has forgiven us. Now, after the goat is released, there's a few other things that happen in this ceremony um, both Aaron and the man who was in charge of taking the ghost into the the goat into the wilderness, uh, they're to to take baths. They are to change their clothes. This is again symbolic of of just washing. If if they happen to, you know, the man touches the goat or he's around the goat, maybe he catches some of the sin. I don't know, but it's a way of just saying make sure you're you're ritually clean when you finish this ceremony. And then Aaron is also to offer two final burnt offerings. And burnt offerings were often just a simple sign of gratitude or thanksgiving. Now, uh, in the podcast today, that's a quick summary. Uh, in the podcast today, I want to do three things. Um, one, I want to talk about that goat that is released into the wilderness real quick and look at something we didn't talk about in the message Uh, And then we're going to jump to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at some things there, and then we're going to come back and look at the final verses of Leviticus 16. So first, let's talk about this goat that is led into the wilderness, and um, the Hebrew word that is used to describe this goat, it's used four different times. Uh, We're in chapter 16. If you have a Bible and want to look at it real quick, uh, it's used in chapter 8, verse 8 of chapter 16. It's used twice in verse 10, and then it's used again in verse 26. And it's this very interesting, mysterious Hebrew word, and the word is Azazel. Azazel, uh, with two Zs. And uh, so verse 10, here's where it's used twice. It says, the goat chosen by Lot as the Azazel. I'm just going to use the Hebrew word there. Uh, remember, there's two goats. One will be li- one will be sacrificed, and one will stay alive. So the goat chosen by Lot as the Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as the Azazel. Now, there is an academic puzzle that is going on here, and uh, if you don't like academic technical questions or puzzles, then you can skip ahead in the podcast about five minutes. But um, I'm guessing that you wouldn't even be listening to this podcast if you didn't like this kind of stuff, right? Because that's pretty much all we've been doing for the last seven weeks. So let me share with you this puzzle, what's actually going on here. The word, uh, the Hebrew word Azazel that's used four times here is not used anywhere else in the entire Old Testament, In fact, we don't really have any ancient literature that uses this word. It's only used these four times. And so Hebrew scholars are not really sure what it means. When you need to learn what a word means from an ancient language, if you have, you know, if it's used a hundred times in a hundred different writings, it's pretty easy to discern and figure out what does it actually mean. But when a word is only used a handful of times, 
it's not always clear what it means. And so there's lots of theories, and the theories are always based on context. So what's the context in which the word is used? And in this case, it's a very straightforward, clear you know, context. Only in Leviticus 16 is it used. And then there's all sorts of linguistic stuff. You can look at Hebrew letters and characters and roots, and you can look at other Semitic um, languages from that time because some of the languages have very similar roots. And so there's all sorts of stuff going on here with scholars trying to figure out what does this word mean. So I'm just going to give you um, a few of the theories of what this word means, and then I'll, I'll end with the most common one. One theory is that Azazel is the name of the guy who took the goat into the wilderness. So the very first guy, when Aaron is doing this, his name was Azazel. And so one goat is sacrificed to God. That's the sacrificial goat. And then the other goat is given to Azazel to take into the wilderness. So that's we're actually just seeing somebody's name here. It doesn't mean anything. It's just like, hey, this is the goat for Azazel to take into the wilderness. Um, another theory is that Azazel is the name of a demon or, or is, is the word to describe a, a demon or an evil force that lives in the wilderness and that also needs to be appeased. And, uh, and, and I know this sounds a little weird, but there are some ancient cultures around Israel at this time that believed things like this. Um, and, and, it, and there's even some evidence that they believe they associated these demons with goats. Uh, and so it's possible that the Hebrew people adopted this belief and sort of saw that they had uh, a God, Yahweh God, who is on our side. And so one goat will be sacrificed to him. And then one goat will be sent into the wilderness to appease sort of the demon god or the evil god uh, or the evil force of Azazel. Um, and again, I know that sounds strange uh, to us, but, but don't forget, the Israelites often borrowed ideas from other cultures, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly. And, and it, that's not even the right way to put it. They, they didn't borrow. They, they lived these people have been living in Egypt for hundreds of years. And so they're just soaking things up from their culture. And so if the dominant culture in the ancient Near East at that time sort of believed in these other demons that lived out in the wilderness that they need to be appeased, it's entirely possible that that, that the Israelites sort of brought that into their whole understanding. Um, so that's one theory. Uh, the third theory is that Azazel means rock precipice or sort of rocky cliff. And the reason for that is that the root of the word Azazel, one of the roots, some of the Hebrew consonants in this word, are similar to the Hebrew uh, root for the word that means strong or rocky. And, uh, and it's usually, and in the sentences that this word is used in, it's almost always followed up by like sending this into the wilderness and so there are some traditions that say this is about the place that the goat is being sent. This is the goat that is being sent into the, into the rocky, barren wilderness. And there's also some traditions that said that the guy who would lead the goat into the wilderness would actually take the goat to a rocky cliff or precipice and push the goat over. Because this goat is full of the people's sin, right? All of their sin and blame and guilt has been transferred on it. And so to make sure it's done and dealt with, the goat actually would be killed because it would be pushed over this cliff. 
Um, we don't know if that's actually what happened, but there's some decent linguistic evidence that the word maybe just means uh, the goat for <laughs> the rocky cliffs uh, in the wilderness. Um, and then here's the most common interpretation of this word, Azazel. Um, the word, uh, uh, well, the Hebrew word for goat and the Hebrew word for go away or send away, when you put them together, they are similar to this word Azazel. And, and again, this is super complex in Hebrew. Hebrew really only has consonants that are written down. We don't have the vowels. And so we kind of have to add those back in. It just gets really complex in figuring out what these words mean. But, but you put the two words for goat and send away together, and uh, it sounds kind of like Azazel. And so the thinking is, that's all this is. This is the word to describe the go-away goat, or the sent-away goat, or the fleeing goat, or the escaping goat. And so in the 1500s, fast forward you know, a few thousand years, uh, a guy named William Tyndale uh, in England made the very first English translation of the Bible from the ancient languages, and he created a new word in English to translate this word, and the word was scapegoat, to describe this idea of the escaping or the going away goat. And so he creates this word called scapegoat to refer to this uh, Hebrew word, and to for, really to refer to this, this goat that bears away the sin and the blame and the guilt of the people. And of course, now we see, oh, that's where that word comes from. We use this word all the time, right? I mean, this word in our language now just means when, when somebody puts the blame for their sin or something they've done on someone else, that's called a scapegoat, right? So that's where this word comes from. So those are some of the options. Uh, obviously, the last one, the scapegoat, that that's what this means, makes the most sense to many people theologically because that's what the function of this goat is. This goat is being sent away to take away the blame and the guilt of all the people. Um, but I share all of this uh, today, sort of this, this the background of this mysterious word, to help you see there's still mystery in these ancient texts, right? Uh, there are terms used that we still don't fully understand. And, uh, and terms used that might actually have multiple layers of meaning. Maybe it early on meant uh, rock precipice and that was part of it, but maybe it also sounds a whole lot like going away goat and it had this double meaning. Who knows? Um, but we don't need to be afraid of this. We don't need to be uh, put off by this, that there are these mysteries and these puzzles in these ancient writings. Um, and, 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 and some of us are, right? Some of us, this is really hard because some of us really, and, and I've been one of these people, uh, want simple black and white answers, right? Well, what did this mean? It had to mean something. Give me the simple sort of black and white answer. And we have modern questions that we bring to these ancient writings. And a lot of times these ancient writings don't answer our modern questions and they don't offer us really easy and simple. And some of the meanings have been lost over time and there are mysteries and there are words we won't fully understand. And I would just say, I don't think we have to be afraid of that. 
I think that some of these mysteries can actually open the door to more faith, more truth, more layers of meaning, more interpretation, not less. So there you go. Uh, The goat of Azazel that carries away our sin in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 mostly is what I'm going to look at. And I'm I'm just going to skip around a whole bunch. And I don't want to spend a ton of time in Hebrews because Hebrews, oh man, is it a complex and intricate and sophisticated uh, book. Hebrews, if you're not familiar with it, um, is a letter uh, written by a, an early Jewish Christian sometime in the middle um, or, or later part of the first century. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, so I, I'm just going to say the writer of Hebrews or the author of Hebrews because we don't have a name. Um, and I'll, I might use the pronoun he uh, from time to time because it was probably a male, but again, we don't know for certain. So it, it could very well be a she. Um, but the, the author of Hebrews is writing to other Jewish Christians, uh, followers of Jesus, but followers of Jesus who are Jewish, all the earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish, but he's writing to other Christians to point out that all of the things from their history and their heritage and the writings that they hold sacred, the Old Testament, right? All of those things find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so in Hebrews, um, a little bit in 8 and in 9 and 10, the writer talks at length about the tabernacle, about the sacrificial system, and about this day of atonement. And, and there's just so much here and there's so many rabbit holes that... that Leviticus has and new rabbit holes that the writer of Hebrews like introduces that we don't have time to chase them all down or read through all of these verses. So I just want to point out a few quick ideas that the writer of Hebrews is playing around with to give deeper meaning to both the Leviticus story and the Jesus story. All right. So here's how chapter nine of Hebrews starts. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And then the writer goes on to describe this earthly sanctuary, and he means the tabernacle there, and he describes the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all the stuff that we've been reading in Leviticus. And then at the end of verse 5, the writer says, "Uh, but we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. (laughs) In other words, if you want to understand the whole system, go reread the book of Leviticus, right? Just go read all the details there. We can't get into all the details right now. But he starts by saying the first covenant. So this word covenant here, it, it kind of means relationship. The first covenant would be uh, the, the way in which the people of Israel related to God, how they knew God, how they worshiped God, the whole system by which they managed their relationship with God, the whole system by which they were his people and he was their God, right? So we use the word covenant sometimes today to refer to marriage. When two people become married, they live together and they love each other. And here's the ways they do it. Here's the promises they make. Here's the the ways they fulfill that relationship of marriage. So what the author is saying is the first covenant 
was about how Israel lived together to be God's people. And it was very structured, right? It was very ordered because that's what the people have needed when they came out of Egypt. They needed this very ordered and structured and systematic and very clear way because it always starts with the details and it always starts with reordering your life. And so they needed all that. That was the first covenant. But then the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus brings a new order. And in in verse 15 of chapter 9, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So here's the key point. The first covenant will point to and lead to and give way to a new covenant. The first covenant the writer of Hebrews sort of describes, uh, was good and it was fine and it was needed for Israel. But now what he's saying is we have a new covenant. And again, he's speaking to, to Jews. We have a new covenant through Jesus, a new way of understanding God and, and relating to him and, and living in relationship with him. We have a new order for our lives. The old order has passed away. The old covenant It has given way and pointed to and led to this new covenant. And in some ways, the new covenant will be similar to the first covenant, or it will build off the first covenant, right? It is built upon the first covenant. The first covenant will prepare or has prepared us as a people for this new covenant. But there's plenty of times where the writer of Hebrews says, the new covenant is going to be different. It's going to be, it's new. It's revolutionary. God has done something brand new in Jesus. Now, one of the ways the earliest followers of Jesus and the writer of Hebrews uh, describe the new covenant as being brand new and is going to be different, is going to represent some sort of break from the way that we Jews have always related to God is we don't have to go to this tabernacle anymore. We don't have to go to this temple anymore. That's not the only place we can find God's presence. That's not the only place we can live with him. That's not the only place where we can go to find forgiveness from him. So so the writer of Hebrews talks about not just a first covenant, but a first tabernacle, as if there's a second tabernacle, or there's a different tabernacle, or there's a new tabernacle. So chapter 9, verse 8 says um, that there was a first tabernacle, and all the sacrifices and all the stuff functioned in the first tabernacle. But then verse 11, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. And and earlier in chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews had said, the first tabernacle was actually just a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And so there's this hugely rich and deep and theological idea here, and we've actually already seen this in Leviticus. Leviticus points to this, that, that the actual tabernacle that was set up in the wilderness was representing something so much bigger. The the actual tabernacle was really representing the entire world. It it looked back to Genesis. It looked back to creation, that that God's presence and God's rule and God's ordering that will take place in this space 
This very physical space we call the tabernacle is really to represent and point to God's presence and God's rule and God's ordering that is to extend to all creation. That was God's intent in the very beginning, that the whole world would be like a tabernacle. And and it, and it also points to and represents almost like the place that God lives, like his space. That's heaven. And heaven isn't necessarily a geographical place. It's not always up in the skies, although sometimes people sort of looked up as if it was up there. Um, But God's space is where he lives. It's where he exists. It's where his ordering is happening. It's where his rule is being lived out. It's where his presence is. And it's just called heaven, right? That's the word we use for where God lives and exists and rules right now. And so the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that the first tabernacle always pointed to and leads to a much bigger and broader tabernacle, this heavenly tabernacle where God lives and where God rules. And this is really just the whole idea that Jesus would call when he was here the kingdom of God. The place where God is ruling, the place where God is reigning, the place where God's order is as it should be. And so if this sounds really theological, we can sort of ground it in a really simple phrase that Jesus said, every time we should pray, you should just pray this, you know, our father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Where you live and where your presence fills right now and where your kingdom and your will is being lived out, may that happen on earth in the same way it happens in heaven. And so for Israel, the tabernacle represented that. It was this very bound geographical space where we will enact and live as if God's ordering and God's rule is happening in this space, but it's always pointing to a greater reality. It's always pointing to what happens outside of the space. It's always pointing to creation broadly. It's always pointing to the way God is ruling and reigning in heaven. It's always pointing to the greater hope that God will bring his full order and his full rule to the entire world. And the writer of Hebrews is like pulling all of this together to say, that has happened and it is happening in Jesus that God, God's presence has come and lived among us and we don't have to go to a building anymore. We don't have to go to a, a, an actual tabernacle anymore and we don't have to enact these rituals there anymore. Those served an important purpose and they were good, but now there is a new covenant. There is a new way. There is a new tabernacle. There is a new kingdom that has broken into this world. And of course, the final thing that the writer of Hebrews wants to point out is that this new way, this this new kingdom, this new covenant is only made possible by Christ's sacrifice. We no longer need the sacrifices of of bulls and, and goats, the blood of bulls and goats. And there's lots of discussion about blood again in Hebrews because we have Christ's sacrifice. 
And Christ's sacrifice builds on all of that, but it supersedes it and it surpasses it and it fulfills it. Christ's sacrifice, the blood that he offered, provides salvation and forgiveness once and for all. So not only does the first covenant point to and lead to the new covenant and the first tabernacle doesn't just point and lead to a new kingdom and a new tabernacle, but, but the earlier sacrifices, the ones that we've practiced throughout our entire history, the writer is saying, point to and lead to ultimately Christ's ultimate sacrifice. So the whole book of Hebrews is, is building on all of that and saying now it's all found its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, all of this, I think, is hugely important for followers of Jesus, right? Because it gives fuller meaning to so many things in the Old Testament. It gives fuller meaning to so many things in Leviticus. And and it explains in part why followers of Jesus stopped offering sacrifices. They stopped doing these rituals, not because they were bad, but because now they have been completed and fulfilled in Jesus, and Jesus offers a new way to know and relate to God, a better way to know and relate to God. But I, I do think uh, there's a danger here, and the danger is this. Many of us, uh, if you grew up in church um, or you grew up in a, a Christian tradition, particularly maybe a, a more conservative Christian tradition, Many of us have read Hebrews and have grown up in church traditions that have either intentionally or often just unintentionally made it as if the only purpose of those laws in the Old Testament, the only purpose of those rituals in the Old Testament, the only purpose of all of those sacrifices and all of that wacky stuff in Leviticus, the only purpose was to prepare us for Jesus, as if none of those things have any value on their own. The only reason we need to read them and know them is so that we can better understand Jesus. The only reason God did all of that for hundreds and hundreds of years is to prepare people for Jesus. That that it only has value when you can connect these obscure Old Testament things somehow to Jesus. And I I just got to be honest, I think that is not only wrong, (laughs) Um. I think that when you view the Old Testament that way and you view books like Leviticus that way, you just end up missing so much that God has for us. You miss so many rich things that God can teach us without going directly to Jesus or saying, well, all that doesn't make any difference anymore because it's all found as fulfillment in Jesus. There are so many ways that God wants to meet us in these stories on their own. That God wants to meet us in these histories and in these writings on their own. It's part of the reason that this whole series, we've mostly just approached Leviticus on its own terms. Every now and then, I'll point out ways that followers of Jesus interpreted this, but, but I just think we need to start with what it can teach us on its own. And so, with that in mind... Uh, In this podcast today, I want to give the last word to Leviticus. So let's go back to Leviticus 16, read the final instructions about this day of cleansing, um, and I just want to point out a few really powerful insights uh, for each of us. So 
Uh, here's what it says. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the 10th day of the seventh month. Now, pause right there. Here's what's interesting about this. The first day of the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar was New Year's Day. It was called Rosh Hashanah. Many of us have heard of that. It's still celebrated today as the beginning of the Jewish New Year. If you're Jewish, you already know this, right? You're listening and of course you know this, right? That happens every year. Sometime in roughly September it happened. Um, it happens in September every year. And uh, in ancient Israel, this was the beginning of the New Year, right? This was like our January 1st in our modern culture today. This was New Year's Day. The first day of the seventh month was New Year's Day. And then 10 days later, you celebrate Yom Kippur. You have this really important ritual of cleansing and purging and wiping away all the failures and all the sins of last year and beginning a new year. So this is truly a fresh start, right? You're looking back on the, it's kind of like what we often do in December and January of every year. You look back on the failures of a previous year, right? You look back on all that's gone wrong, all that you regret. But Yom Kippur doesn't just look back on all that's gone wrong and all that the people regretted and all that they were carrying. It looked forward. It gave them a ritual to mark a new year, a new start, a clean slate. There's this sense that you come to the day of cleansing and you have the opportunity to start over, to begin again with a clean slate and a new year. Now, it goes on. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work. So the phrase deny yourselves in Hebrew is literally afflict or humble or discipline your souls. Now, that could refer um, to a posture in your heart of humbling yourself. I mean, to sort of bring all of your sins, even the ones you haven't confessed, your rebellion to God. I mean, that, that, there's, there's going to be some soul searching on this day. There's humbling on this day. And, and maybe affliction of your soul is a good translation. But, um, but it probably deny yourselves is a good translation because it more likely has this sense of not only preparing your hearts, but on this day, actually don't do anything. You need to pause and stop doing anything else because it says you must deny yourselves and not do any work, right? So don't do anything. Don't do anything you would normally do. And it's very clear in the Hebrew that when it says do not do any work, that that means any work, And what's so fascinating is all the other holidays and the feasts and the occasions that are described in Leviticus and in other parts of the Old Testament, it will say, don't do any regular work on these days. Don't do any customary work on these days. Meaning on all these other festival days, don't do your normal work, right? You have normal work. Don't go, don't go to your job on that day. But of course, 
you have some work to do because you have to prepare a meal on this day. You maybe have to get the house ready, right? There's going to be guests coming over. There's stuff to do. So there's things that you might do on these other festival days that be considered could be considered work. You're going to have to do those. Just don't do the things that are normal work for you. But on the day of cleansing, it doesn't include that word. It just says, don't do any work at all. There is nothing you should be doing on this day. And that probably means fasting even from food tied in with the sort of denying yourselves piece. Like don't even eat on this day. This should be a day when you do nothing. This should be a day when you don't even eat. This is a day probably when husbands and wives, it meant reading between the lines, like no sexual activity on this day. You need to fast from all activity all work, everything that you might do in your normal life or anything that it, it, it represents any kind of activity or effort on your part, stop everything on this most important day of the year. And there's a hugely theological message going on here. What it's basically saying is this, on this day, there's nothing that you can do to work for your forgiveness. There is nothing that you can do to earn your forgiveness today. You are carrying your sins. You are carrying your guilt. You are carrying your failures. And there is nothing that you can do to unload them. God is going to do it all for you today. God is going to carry all of it away for you today. All of the work of forgiveness and redemption and cleansing today will be done by God. Today, you don't do anything. Today, you are only a recipient of God's grace, of God's work on your behalf. And the message is is loud and clear because it goes on to say this in verse 30, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. And then before the Lord, you will be clean from all of your sins. Notice all of the passive language and grammar. These these are called (laughs) passive uh, verbs, right? Atonement will be made for you. That means the subject of the verb is somebody else. You are not making atonement for yourself. Someone is making atonement for you. You can't do it yourself. You will be cleansed. You are not being cleaning yourself or cleansing yourself. You can't do that. You will be made clean from all of your sins. You can't accomplish this on yourself. On this day, don't do anything. You just stand there and wait as a reminder that it is only God, only God, who can cleanse and remove and forgive. Now, there's another detail from these verses. It says, verse 29, uh, on the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves, not do any work, whether native born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you. So did you notice who this is for? It's for native born, that would mean Israelites, and foreigners residing among you. So so throughout Israel's history, even right here at the beginning, they're still camped in the wilderness. There's immigrants 
within their community. There are foreigners who live there. In fact, many scholars think there were probably some Egyptians who left Egypt because of the oppression they were experiencing there as well. And they joined the Israelites when they left Egypt. And there might have been a really small group of Egyptians or foreigners that were living even at this point within the community of Israel. And so these foreigners were being told right at the beginning, they're going to be people, and there's all kinds of other passages passages about these foreigners. Think about it. They're people who are ethnically different. They're, they're not, you know, Semitic. They're not they're not ethnically Hebrew. Um, they don't have this, this history and this, this cultural background that Israel has. They're going to bring their own traditions. They're probably going to bring their own beliefs about what God is like or who the gods are or their worship of gods or their idols. I mean, these are outsiders living within the people. But Leviticus is saying, guess what? God forgives their sin too. They can join in this ritual. They can come to God, to Yahweh for grace and forgiveness. They are no different than anyone else. This is not an Israel thing. This is not a Hebrew thing. You don't have to have a certain ethnicity and you do not have to have done anything to earn this. You don't do any work on this day and it doesn't matter who you are on this day. Everyone who participates in this day can experience the cleansing, the release, the wiping of the slate clean, the new start that God wants to give. This is for everyone. Now, I want to point out one final thing, then we're done. Verse 31 pulls all of this together by saying this. It is a day of Sabbath rest. And you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. So for the second time in three verses, like, hey, this is really important. Deny yourselves, right? In case you missed it the first time, don't do any work on this day. This has nothing to do with what you can do or accomplish or you can work for. This is all about what God is doing. Today is a gift. You're just receiving it. Don't do anything. But then it makes it clear. It is a day of Sabbath rest. Now, this is not an actual Sabbath day, meaning this day doesn't always fall on the seventh day of the week. The seventh day of the week was the Sabbath day in the Hebrew calendar, right? In other words, this day of cleansing, whenever it falls, is going to be like those Sabbath days where you're not supposed to do any work. So so that's one really simple and sort of straightforward way of reading this. But it's even bigger than that. Because in Hebrew, the phrase is literally... This is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. (laughs) The word is repeated twice. This is a Sabbath day of all Sabbath days. Now, now we're going to talk about the Sabbath day in a few weeks, but but Sabbath just means two things in Hebrew, um, in in, in the ancient, uh, in the Old Testament, in in their culture. The Sabbath day was a day where you stop working. The word Sabbath comes from the verb in Hebrew that means to stop or to cease. So whenever you read Sabbath day, you can just read stop day, right? This is a stop day. And what this passage is saying is the day of atonement is a stop day of all stop days. (laughs) It's just another reminder that this is the ultimate day where nothing you do is accomplishing what's happening. You haven't done anything. Forgiveness and grace is, is, is nothing to do with what you can work or accomplish. 
But Sabbath is not just about stopping. Sabbath is also about resting. See, stopping is the negative part. Stop doing work on this day. But the positive part is so that on this day, you can experience rest. You you can experience peace. You can experience shalom, well-being, the sense that everything is okay. You can experience the sense that your identity is in who you are, not what you do, not what you produce, not the work that you do. In Egypt, you constantly worked. In Egypt, it was endless. In Egypt, you were slaves. In Egypt, that was like an endless burden that you carried with you. Sabbath will be a rest from that burden. Sabbath is a rest from that work. Sabbath is a rest from any ideas where you might equate your identity with what you do or what you work or what you can produce or what you can accomplish That is not your identity. So on Sabbath day, you stop working and you experience genuine rest. And Leviticus 16 says that the day of cleansing is to be a Sabbath of all Sabbaths. It's going to be like a rest day of all rest days. It's on this day that you will experience the deepest and the fullest and the most expansive and the most holistic understanding of complete rest that you have ever experienced because on this day, all of your burdens are lifted. On this day, everything is forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. On this day, you can just rest in the truth that God loves you, that he forgives you, that you are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. That is like the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. That is the rest of all rest days. Now, let's wrap up there. The book of Leviticus is going to move into some brand new territory when we get to chapter 17. And so I hope you'll join us uh, for the next message because we'll begin to unpack Um, Some really cool things that start happening in Leviticus. But today, here's a challenge for you. May you seek the rest today and this week. Whatever you have going on in your life right now, may you seek the rest that only God can give. And sometimes you have to stop to do that. Sometimes you have to drop everything. Sometimes you have to pause. Sometimes you have to have an entire day that you set aside. A day of reflection, a day of humility, a day of approaching God, a day of remembering you are his beloved daughter or his beloved son. A day of remembering that true rest is found in him and only he can give it to you. And it comes through grace, and grace is free, and grace is a gift, and grace is never something you can earn on your own. So may you let go of whatever burdens you're carrying. May you find rest by handing them over to Jesus, who invites all of us with these words from Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.